Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we have a special returning guest. This man is a pioneer of internet marketing. He put on the very first internet marketing seminar with the founder of, what was the browser, Ken? This is 1996, wasn't it? Or earlier? 94, it was the original Mosaic browser, which became Netscape, which was the very first commercial browser. Yeah, Ken's been here forever. The banner ad was created at one of his infamous system seminar conferences, as well as the fact that they were doing video marketing. I think back when nobody was doing video marketing, I don't even know if porn had picked up video yet at that point online. Oh, no. porn, porn always gets there first, but we were doing video marketing in 2005. Yeah. And when I gave a talk at a Perry Marshall event in 2006, I said, video is the future of the internet. Gave about an hour explanation for why. Then I asked how many people believe me and only half of them put their hands up. Yeah. Ken, Ken is the who's who. So for those that are here, and I, I do want to lament about, not to just blow a bunch of hot air, Ken, but I want to lament because since the pandemic and that a lot of people have been pushed online and a lot of them have found like their guru of choice. And what a lot of people may or may not know is Ken, again, he is like the, the apex of the internet marketing chain, so to speak. A lot of people may know ClickFunnels. It's probably one of the biggest softwares in the internet marketing space. And the founder just bought all of Dan Kennedy's intellectual yeah. property. And Dan yeah. Kennedy's go-to guy for all things internet marketing related were Ken. He was the one of the if he was one of the few, if not the only person Dan Kennedy really trusted when it came to online marketing in terms of what worked. And what didn't. So Ken it is I have another one that I only learned recently. Who's the four hour a week guy? The Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. Okay. So somebody asked Tim Ferriss what his favorite book was. And he said it was, it was a Dan Kennedy book, and I can't remember the title now. Make millions with your ideas. Mm. And all the chapters in that book on the internet were written by me. <laughs> and the method that Tim Ferriss used to come up with that chapter was the method that we first introduced at the system seminar, which is take a lot of chapters of your book, buy ads on, on Google AdWords, and just count the clicks and see which one works. So yeah, wherever you go in the internet, when you get deep, you find me. Yeah, yeah. All all roads lead back to Ken. I, I almost can guarantee it. So it is an <laughs> honor and a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, again, I really appreciate it. It's been a wild ride these last few years. So before we jump into that, though, for some of the people, can you talk about how did you even get into online marketing? Well, you know, I got involved in it because I was in San Francisco and there was a lot of it, a lot of it, lot, there wasn't any internet marketing going on, but there was a lot of online stuff going on. And I at the time I was doing a lot of direct mail because there was no internet marketing when I started. Right. I looked at the internet and very quickly figured out this is going to be direct mail on steroids. And so I started bringing people from the direct marketing industry and people from the internet industry together and taught the direct marketing people about the internet, taught the internet people about direct marketing. If you Google my name, Time Magazine and click-through rate, you'll see that the whole concept of calculating the click-through rate came from me. 
basically every I hate to say it, but I mean, email marketing, I wrote the first article on email marketing. Yep. I was one of the very first people to use what I call sequential autoresponders. I don't know what yeah. people, that was in 95 or yeah. excuse me, 96. Was it the systems club beginner? What was it called? The beginner, the manual. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, you know, we, one of my students was the first guy to sell banner ads in, in volume. That was Rick Boyce. We were the first to have push button audio on the internet. I mean, I had free, I had even forgotten that. And then somebody reminded me. So all this podcasting and all this stuff you see before us, you used to have to download a player, then download the file, then put the file in the player. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And one of our faculty members came up with the idea of just packing all the audio into a, a flash player, which flash was on everybody's system. Yeah. And you could push the button and the audio would come right away. That was us. One of my students wrote the first book on mobile marketing, the first book. My yep. book on internet marketing was the first internet marketing book in Japan. And on and on it goes. Yeah. Even traffic and conversion, which is now maybe a massive conference that happens. I think it's in San Diego. That term traffic and conversion, that first came from you. You said all, all internet marketing is, is traffic and conversion. You generate a lot of traffic and you see if it converts, you know? And yeah, because, yeah, because before that, everybody was, and people still get focused on trivia, but people were really focused on trivia. And, you know, do we have a flashing light on the website? Do we look cool? Do we have a talking sock puppet? I'm all this nonsense. And I said, look, I was exasperated one day and I said, look, it's traffic plus conversion. If you're doing anything else, you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that I guess that's become, well, I know Lloyd Irvin, our mutual friend, yeah, has yeah. used that to build a eight figure a year business. So it's yeah. a good little, it's good handy little formula. That's right. Yeah. Well, even Jermaine Griggs, he's also a good friend of mine. And, oh, you know, you know can, can I say something? Jermaine, there are now a million guys teaching piano on the internet. Yeah. Jermaine was the first and he's yep. still the best. He's teaching it. We talk almost yeah. every day. I like we chat every day. He's the goat. He's like you. He's been in this game over 20 years and it's just fundamentals, well applied. You know, and this almost ties in. I have this quote that I got from you and it still rings with me today. And it was delegate as much as you can. So you're calling the shots, analyzing the stats and copywriting. And I've kind of updated that to just be like delegate and automate as much as you can. So you're calling the shots, you know, analyzing the stats. And for me, I put communicating and converting because communication, it's like retention and sales. Like it's. Yeah. 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 Which is really almost better than saying copywriting because you're focusing on the function. It Like there's nothing. Copywriting is not important. Yeah. What's yep. important are attracting people and converting them and retaining them. And you use copy to do that. Right. So it's, it's better. Yeah. Yeah, but it's better to be focused the way you are rather than just be focused on writing. People just yeah. kind of get off the track when they get too into the writing part. You really need to think about, okay, got to bring people in, got to get them on board, got to keep them on board. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So did you, did, were your parents entrepreneurs? Is that what got you into being? Not at all. Oh my God, not in the slightest, not in the least. They're the least entrepreneurial people in the world. <laughs> How'd you even get into business? Is this was that your speed reading? I'm trying to remember. The first supporting myself money I ever made was I had a company that taught speed reading and study skills to college students. And this was way pre-internet. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you did flyers, I think you were telling me about that. You had a little yeah, flyer it was flyers. You know, I lived in a. This might even work in. Well, you're from. I know you're from Kingston, Ontario. You're not there anymore. But you know, if it, this, you know, New York is, among other things, it's a huge college town, and a lot of people are are getting degrees, and it's very dense, and there's a lot of people. So all I needed to do to build that business was post. I mean, I posted thousands of flyers a week, but that was my only advertising method, and it, it, I really couldn't even make anything else work. There was no internet at the time, but flyers were amazing. That's fantastic. I love that because it's all the same. It, I don't want to say it's all the same, but the principles are are very similar. I think it's the same. It, I would say it is the same. You know, it's either it's a flyer on a light pole or it's a web web page on a website. I mean, well, you know, you got to do the same thing. You got to have a good headline. You have to have a reason for them to contact you, and then you have to have a way to convert them. I mean, it really is the same thing. Mm, mm, mm. So, can you maybe for people that are listening and maybe are new to the game, what could you could you wax poetic a little bit more about kind of in all your tenure, what are the fundamentals? Like if you had to give yourself or a child or something, the top three or five principles off the top of your head before we move yeah. into some of this other stuff, you know, again, because yeah. a lot of people are trying to pivot online all of a sudden. So yeah. Would you recommend- uh, well, number one, become an expert on a market versus becoming a marketing expert. Okay. Cause money is made by knowing a particular market and working that market successfully. And I'm all for learning every marketing trick in the world and reading every marketing book in the world. I'm all for that. But it's way more important that you identify a a promising market and get to know that market inside and out. Mm. And I'm amazed how many people go into business not thinking about that. You know, it's the market that matters. It's the market that matters and your knowledge of the market. Mm, used to use the analogy of diving into a swimming pool, no water. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, I had a student that was captain, no, coach of the British Olympic diving team, you know. So it got me thinking about diving. And, you know, it's all the same thing. You're diving off a diving board into water. If there's no water, you're in deep trouble, right? So if you're trying to go after a market that doesn't exist, which a lot of entrepreneurs do, mm. there's no hope. But there's another problem. What if the market is, there's water in there, but it's frozen solid. In other words, it's a non-responsive market. You know, it is water, but you dive into it and it's not going to be a pleasant experience. And then I've added another twist to it. What if it's steam? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what if it's a market that's just, uh, I don't know, it's just, it, it just, you're going to get burned, you know? So what you want is you want to be diving into a swimming pool that has water. And that means a marketplace of a good size that you can target with media that's responsive to direct response offers. And I just gave you guys the whole game right there. And it may take you 20 years to understand how profound what I just said was, but that's what the game is, right? And then once you, you know, on the path to doing that is a lot of research. And it's amazing how many people try to do internet marketing who don't get on the internet and check out every single offer in the market that they intend to Mm. enter. You need to become the walking encyclopedia on every single thing going on online in the market that you want to enter. You need to know everything. You know, there are people like in, you know, Canada, everybody knows all the hockey players and in Spain, everybody knows all the soccer players. And in America, everybody knows the basketball players. They know the guy's name, they know the guy's stats. And and then they'll go into business and they don't even know the top three players in the industry that they're trying to enter. I mean, it's just, 
you know, see, so, yeah. so don't, don't be that guy, be the guy that becomes obsessively interested because what you do is you learn everything you learn. You say, Oh, well, look at that offer and look at that price structure and look at that thing that he's put together. And, you know, it just all comes together in your mind and you see where the holes are. And then I'll give you my second big secret and then no more secrets. People got to join my system club for secrets. Okay. But the, the other secret is product, product development is not uh, rocket science okay it's like walking on a road and sometimes you're going to see a hole in the road and sometimes you're going to see a bump in the road now if you're driving on a car and you're just you know racing through you're not going to see anything you got to get out of your car and look if there's a hole in the road that means there's something the market isn't providing the people in the marketplace so fill the hole right mm-hmm. a bump would be things that exist but are kind of clunky expensive slow inefficient unpleasant and your job is to smooth that out so if you're looking for how to enter a marketplace that's how you enter a marketplace see everything that's swirling around and then figure out okay what would excite the people in this particular marketplace that's different right that's something that nobody else is bringing or eliminates a problem or series of problems that nobody else is is eliminating mm. and and you know, I'm a, as you know, I'm a good copywriter and, mm-hmm. you know, we could talk about copywriting all day, but unless you get these things right, no mm-hmm. amount of copyright save you. Right, right, right. That's what Gary Bensavenga was saying. Problems are markets, you know, and even exactly. I think Maxwell Sackheim said, you know, when your offer and when your offer is right, something about like when your offer and your market are right, the copyrights itself. Basically, like that, that is just so true, guys. And anybody that's experienced writer's block, it's research deficit. You right, haven't right. done enough. If you've done enough homework, you will figure out what to say. Right. And, it, and you don't even need to be like the world's greatest writer if you've picked the right market with the right offer and, and you're coming at it from the right angle. Mm. You cannot overcome getting those things wrong. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Those are some fantastic tips already that makes this interview repeat worthy. People may want to go back and listen to this stuff again. You know, let me say, I, I've been doing this a long time and I definitely recommend people review everything I just said and get yeah. it into their bones yeah. because it will catapult them beyond 99.9% of the wannabes. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. I, I spent $50,000 to research. Everybody was arguing about the science in 2020 and I spent 50 grand because I've done, you know, hundreds of these interviews and I was like, what does the science say about business success? So I put it together a team of about seven people, a couple more. So I say seven teams. And we went through all the academic journals. We went through like 70 years of research to figure out what are the critical success factors for small and medium-sized businesses. And based off of the research, we all these different studies prove different things. And if people don't know, a meta-analysis is when someone summarizes hundreds or thousands of studies on a topic or in a field. And we tried to collect meta-analyses from around the world, Dubai, or Saudi Arabia, Thailand, the US, everywhere. And all these things proved and even some disproved things. And we tried to figure out like a Venn diagram, what were the overlapping umbrella categories? And we found eight critical success factors. And so the first one is self-efficacy. And we can get into the subtopics. The second one was market intelligence. And I'm saying these in order of kind of like, again, like fundamentals, you almost start at one and build your way back. And what you talked about right there, Self-advocacy, market intelligence, strategic planning, marketing strategy, sales strategy and skills, money management, business operations, and business intelligence. And they're all pretty self-explanatory, but business operations is like the meeting rhythms, your cybersecurity, where you host your IP, that 
your 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 HR like hiring processes and business intelligence are like the feedback loops. I know there's a lot of people, you know, they they make all these wild claims or they they sell this product, these products and they get a bunch of refunds and they end up getting taken in front of the FTC or whatever and it's because they did they weren't, you know, or a bunch of bad press online, it's they weren't getting the feedback. They weren't paying attention to their dashboards and and tracking this. Right, right. So it's, you know, but the stats don't matter if you don't have the market intelligence lined up, if you're not able to generate leads and people raising their hands, if you're not able to convert those to sales, all that other stuff doesn't matter. So it's like, you got to start at the beginning and, and work. I mean, it, it really, you did present it really in the order that matters. Obviously you have to be effective as a person. You have to get up and, you know, work a day's work. And, but the second thing is you need market intelligence. And from that comes the strategy and the right marketing and all right. that and the right product right. development. That all flows from knowing the market because it's uh-huh. we're we're we need to be experts on on specific markets. Not it, it's good to be a global marketing expert; it won't hurt you. But you, you, there are a lot of global marketing experts that don't make any money. Yep. There are a lot of guys that couldn't give a lecture on on marketing who are making tons of money because they they are in one market which they really understand and they're mining it beautifully. Yeah. yeah. Blockbuster is a good example I like to bring up where they were posting, you know, they were doing billions in, in sales every year and they got wiped out and run bankrupt by Netflix. And they even had the opportunity to buy Netflix, but they were so right. detached from the market and the strategic plan. It's almost like the builders and the innovators had built it. And then all the managers, lawyers and accountants, no offense, had moved in and they didn't necessarily know how to create that. And so it was more about just like maximizing what existed versus, I mean, newspapers were the same thing. Newspaper subscriptions were the river of gold, you know, and then all of a sudden it started to dry up and people, they, it was either, do we have enough money to hold on till someone figures it out or who could stay in touch with the market? You know, Torstar, which, which owns the Toronto star and, and owns a lot of little newspapers. It's the biggest media company in Canada. They hired me like, man, 15 years ago. And I, I told them they were doomed. And they just didn't get it. I said, look, you got, you know, because, and it was really interesting to visit Torstar because I don't know where they're housed now, but this, their building was enormous. And I'd be walking down these hallways and I'd see these huge rooms off each doorway empty. And so their overhead was incredible. And I said, look, you know, Google, which was then an upstart, they've got all the content in the world. They don't have to pay for any of it. Mm -hmm. They don't have a single ad salesman. All the ad purchases are self-service. They can sell to every market in the world. You're limited to Canada and Ontario. They're going to kill you. You need to figure it out. You know, and and speaking of Google, you know, Google offered to sell itself to every search company when they first got started. And I think the price was was either a million or $2 million. They were going to sell all the IP. That's what they wanted to do. And nobody bit. Wow. So there's a huge perceptual deficit out there. And that's how we make our money. We see where the holes are. Right. Which requires, you know, research and looking yeah. and thinking, pondering. And... Yeah. It's like if there was a lake and around that lake are lots of birds and some birds eat insects, some birds eat fruit, some birds eat nuts and seeds, some birds eat other birds, some birds eat fish. And that's kind of what you're describing. You need to know the market and be able to figure out your your slice of that pie. Yeah. Because you need to, to get to succeed in a marketplace, you have to bring something new and different and better. So you have to know what the market is in order to do that. And what I was saying about this, my road repair method model for product development is the way you find out 
is you get into the market and you see which products suck and why they suck and yeah. and yeah. which products are good but could be a whole lot better. Uh, and then you put something together and craft it. And then that market, that product, if you've designed it right, becomes the magnet that brings you the mm. all important buyers. I'll give you one more thing and maybe we'll get on to the other topics tonight. Yes. But yes. this is another key one, guys. And, and this will take you years to realize how profound it is. There's a difference between buyers and non-buyers. Mm. A buyer is a buyer is a buyer is a buyer. So if they buy one thing, if they buy you know, toothpaste online and music online, there's a chance they'll buy what you're selling online, right? Yep. If they don't buy online... You are not going to sell them anything yep. online. Okay. Yep. So you have to be realistic about like, you know, a lot of people say, well, the market's huge. There's $10 billion in sales. If I could just get, you know, one little percent of that, you're not going to get that percent. So you have to be realistic that you're only going to sell to people that are buyers. And the whole purpose of building a business is to accumulate a big list of buyers to whom you can sell things to on an ongoing basis. It's not about the home run sale, you know, Maybe once in a blue moon, you'll find somebody that had one product and he killed it and he sold a gazillion million dollars worth of it in a year and he retired. That's not what happens. What happens is somebody step, step by step acquired a, a following and that became a cash cow that he pulled cash out of regularly until it finally became something significant. So we're really, the product is a magnet for for buyers who become your followers, who become your cash cows. That's really what this about. Right, right, right. I think the quote is, if a sale is a golden egg, a customer is the goose. Exactly. Right? You want the goose. Yeah. You're looking for gooses. Right. And most people think it's all about golden eggs. Oh, I got to find a golden egg. No, you got to yeah. find a flock of geese. Yeah. You have to find that person in it. I think it gets out of long term. You have to be in it to help people long, long term over and over and over again. Right. Not yeah, just one night stand. Sure. And I'll share another really big one here is you're looking for problems that don't go away. Like that's why mm -hmm. health, that's you know, fitness is great because you can always be more fit. Yeah. Martial arts, which is a, kind of a niche market, but it's a very hungry market is great because as soon as you learn one technique, there's somebody yeah. that's got yeah. something to counter it. So you know that, you know, really well, right? Yeah. You know, that's financial. A that's a great oh, it's tip. Huge, it's huge. You don't want to solve somebody's problem forever yeah. on the first try. I mean, it, I mean, it'd be a nice thing to do, but from terms of forming a business, well, look at toothpaste. Like, to, you have to brush your teeth every day. It's an unsolvable. You don't brush your teeth with the greatest teeth, toothbrush ever, and now you're done. You're basically brushing your teeth for the rest of your life. So you right. want to be in the toothpaste business, right? Uh, you know, and people develop preferences. So that's fantastic. Now, I, I do, like you said, want to segue this, and actually, I, I think a way is. In our research, those were the eight factors we learned that people can do something about. There was a ninth factor, and I think that's kind of going to be the focus for our call. And that was government and economy, because we learned that there's friendly government governance and friendly economies and hostile governance and hostile economic conditions. And we learned that, you know, basically all you could do is focus on those eight things, but that's still a huge factor that businesses have to be aware of. And I think that's, you know, the last few years, we've really seen, you know, the middle class and small businesses just completely decimated. And you, you know, for full full disclosure, Ken and I have been friends for years, but this is our first time talking in a couple of years because I was fully drinking the Kool-Aid in 2020. I was all, you know, with the program and Ken being the pioneer he is, pioneers get the arrows, the settlers get the lands. He was trying to warn me that there's, you know, there are nefarious games afoot. 
you speak to that a little bit? Well, it, it was a hard time because, you know, I have like everybody else, I've got businesses to run. And then this, this, this thing came out of the left field and that became, you know, a full-time job plus for me Assuming, trying yeah. to come at it. And so, you know, I was pretty much I, right now, guys, I can only talk to people that are with me. I can't explain the whole thing. So I, I had blog posts and and I, I actually put out a lot of content, a lot of education. Some of that got put into this book, which just came out, yep. Unraveling yep. the COVID Con. And this has podcasts and interviews that I did starting in April 20, 2020. So anyway, yeah, it was and still is a busy time for me. I got, you know, I, I, I yeah, it was hard. <laughs> It's been, yeah. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. One of the things I did, it, it was pretty clear that Fauci was sort of the, the key man in the whole deal. Yep. So I started, because, you know, we're, and this applies to everything, right? We have to just survive, rely on on advice. You know, we, yep. I, like I have to assume that if there's a map that shows me how to drive to New York City, that the map is correct. I don't right. have to have to buy my own satellite to to take photos of the pathway between my house and New York City to make yep. sure that there's really a road there, you know? Yep. You know, but unfortunately, sometimes we do have to do yep. like that. So the question you always want to ask yourself is who's saying it? You know, right. whatever that information is, who's saying it? And what's that person's background and track record? Yep. And it turned out that, you know, Fauci actually has a really bad track record. And yes. this is something that people still don't know. I mean, He's got a bad track record going back 40 years. Yep. And it's not just one screw up. He's screwed up catastrophically many times, always in the same way. Yep. So I did a little research on that. A lot of that research appeared in the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, written by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I got involved in marketing that book because they did not have a marketing plan. Yes. Their, marketing plan so yeah, their, their marketing plan was to announce the book was available and then get on to the next project. Yeah, yeah. Like, wait a minute, guys. Yeah, yeah. This book is a, has the potential to be a killer because yes. it was the right topic about the right guy at the right time by the right guy. And so the publisher originally published 200,000 copies, which he expected to sell in a year and a half. And we sold a million in, in two months. Wow. And wow. I played, well, I, play, I played a big role in it, but but the wind was blowing, you know, and as I said yeah. to, to one of the people involved in it, we absolutely, because also talking about markets, there were no good books out no. coming at the time that on anything, not, on, I mean, yeah. not just on COVID, but on any subject, it was a real lull in yeah. the publishing yeah. industry. And I said to, to somebody who we, I was working with on that, I said, look, we've got the fastest boat on the water right now. We just yeah. have to raise our sales. Yeah. You know, I don't mean selling. We had to put the sales up and let the wind carry us. And the wind really carried that book. Oh, 100%. Um, and now, as yeah. we know, a lot of it was, you know, from the Twitter files that have been coming out, the massive censorship. There was a huge need for this. There was a book about it was something called like how the prime minister stole the stole or, or stole democracy. I forget the name of it, but it was a children's book that hit number one in Canada for like a month. And it was all about Trudeau and the trucker protest thing. Because you couldn't, the censorship was so bad, you couldn't get anything out. But this children's book went on Amazon and it was number one oh, on the whole Canada Amazon store for like three months. Yeah. Oh, let me write that down. I want to check yeah. that out. Yeah. It was like how the PM stole democracy, but it was a kid's book. And it was like you talked about the real Anthony Fauci. It was like, where can we get the truth out? Where can we actually reach people? Because again, as we learned through the Twitter files, there was mass censorship happening by government agencies. 
and it just stifled the conversation in one way. I mean, the other, the power, like for me, just a kind of 30 seconds, you know, I grew yeah. a successful martial arts school over three years. And then I went and applied the things that I'd learned from you and I'd used to build my martial arts school. And I applied that with John Asraf to an online business. And we did 3.2 million in eight months, 1.6 million with a single marketing strategy online that was highly automated. And it was just the scale because with the internet, you reach everywhere. And the problem is, is this censorship and the governance through the Twitter files, we've seen that they've been exporting political ideology and censoring conversations worldwide. And that's, you know, it's pros and cons. I'd like to think the world's not getting worse. It's just the, the evils that's existed is becoming, you know, coming into the sunlight, so to speak. That's kind of the second thing to look at. So, you know, the first thing is, all right, who's saying it? And what's this guy's track record? And the next thing is, next big, big red flag is, is there open conversation yes. about yes. what's going on? And as you pointed out, there was not. I mean, the, the people should know this and not enough people know it. Bill Gates gave over $300 million to various news outlets, you know, The Guardian, NPR, Los Angeles Times, Le Monde in Paris, El Pais in Spain. And, you know, these newspapers, we were talking about newspapers earlier, they're all broke. Yeah. So if somebody shows up at their door with two or $3 million, he owns them. Yeah. He just oh, owns them. So that was the other thing. When there's no, when you can't talk about, yeah. and you can't ask questions and you can't raise facts, there's obviously the problem. There's a problem, yeah. you know? Yes. Yes. That's Karl Popper was one of the early science educators and he had a formula for the scientific method. And he said, there is no method that produces scientific breakthroughs. If there were, we would they would be more frequent, more common and more revolutionary. But what we have is a process of, of how we can stop fooling ourselves. And this formula right. was P1 plus TT plus EE equals P2. And the idea was problem one plus tentative solution, which he said, tentative theory, temporary theory, temporary solution, plus eliminate errors. And we eliminate errors through criticism, debate, experimentation, observation. And that will lead you to problem two, or you're still at problem one, but you've learned more about the problem. And the problem and the issue, like I say, when there's censorship, there's no eliminating errors. And that's the real power of even democracy in the voting system. It's not to guarantee the best person always gets in the office. It's to have a way that we can eliminate errors and hopefully get the the wrong people and the wrong policies out of office faster. And that's yeah. a real value of that because it's about progress, constant improvement. And if we don't constantly improve, we're stuck. And, you know, and it's like, it's stagnation. It's dangerous. And, you know, ironically, to be successful in business, you actually have to be a scientist. Yes. And that doesn't mean you have to know biology or calculus or any of that, but you have to observe, yes. <laughs> come up with, you know, hunches or hypotheses or guesses, yep. and then you test them. Yep. And you say, well, I think this headline will work. Let's see what happens. And yep. it works great. Or maybe it doesn't work. And then, you know, and then you come up with a better one. So, in fact, that one of the guys that really got me to understand the fraud very early on, and he disappeared. I kind of have to look at what happened to him. He was a Google AdWords campaign expert mm. who, who worked for political parties mm. and looked at the statistics that were being thrown around by the fraudsters. And he said, bullshit. 
Mm, mm. <laughs> he knew statistics. He knew how numbers worked. He yeah. was reading. Their, he was looking at their numbers and saying, "These." And, and you know, we mm. actually know a lot about viral transmission yep. as advertisers and as people that track social media. We actually know a lot about that, and we know. You know, we you can get into the math of it too. You don't need to get into the math, but there is math to be gotten into. This guy was way into the math, and he was looking at all their transmission statistics and saying that these are not real numbers. They can't be. Yeah. That's how I. I broke an election fraud in San Francisco in 1977. And it was, um, I also did it with, I also was tipped off by a statistician. He said that the numbers in the election made absolutely no sense. Mm, mm. The uh, one group was ahead 10% right up until the election on all the original counts that night, they were ahead 10%. And then when the last ballot boxes came in, suddenly the whole election flipped and now the other side won. And he said that statistically, I mean, it's like one in a trillion that you would ever see numbers. Yeah. Fall. Yeah. yeah. And that's really dangerous because that means, you know, it's again, it's like the WHO trying to take control of health policy around the world. Nobody elected those people. And oh, so yeah. there isn't a way of, like we said, our voting system, there's uh, how confident can we be in their process of eliminating errors? In right, like forget the whole nefarious globalist. Okay, let's put all that aside. How do we quickly and efficiently eliminate errors, identify and eliminate them? And where's that data coming from? You know, is it do we have to wait for a small group of people to feel the pressure while millions yeah. and hundreds and tens of millions, hundreds of millions around the world suffer? Like that's the real scary part about all this. So, you know, there's another part to it and I haven't, well, I ha to a degree I have, but I haven't done it to the extent that I'd like, which is to become, I am very familiar with other countries and other places to live. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody should have a passport. It's amazing how many American citizens don't have passports. I remember I did, I had this high end coaching group and we had, I wanted to travel to different places. So we had a meeting in London. We had a meeting in Montreal, my favorite city. We had a meeting in Vancouver, another beautiful, beautiful city. And we had members in our group that, you know, there was, a, you know, sophisticated yeah. people. They had nice businesses. They were educated. They didn't have passports. They all had to go and get passports. And I said, if I do nothing else for you, I've gotten you to get a passport. People should really travel, see other countries, see how things are done in other places, not get hypnotized that your country is the greatest country that ever existed. It may have some good qualities, may have some bad qualities, and you may find yourself more comfortable and more prosperous. There's a guy, what's his name? Andrew Henderson, the nomad capitalist. I, hate, I don't want to give him a free, free advertising because I, I don't want to endorse anybody that I haven't checked out thoroughly, but he's very big on, you know, he's an American, but he lives overseas and he's organized his tax life. So he pays no taxes. He actually got rid of his American citizenship. There's a lot of finance. I mean, I want to get, get, go too far off on this, but there's a lot of downsides financially to being an American citizen. Mm. We are super, super taxed. Even if we're living in the Philippines or in yeah. Mexico or in Romania or, yeah. in, you know, we still have to pay tax. We're, that's the only country in the world. I think Rwanda or some other or Iran or some horrible country, yeah, but other down. countries, like if you're a Canadian and you're not paying taxes to Canada when you're living in the right. Philippines. Right. Right. And you can arrange, this is an advanced thing. And I wouldn't even think about it until you're starting to make some money. But once you're starting to make some money, definitely go around and see how you can rearrange your, where you live and where your business is based and where you're yeah. paying taxes. Cause it can make a huge difference. Yeah. Some kind of prepper items is to try and get multiple passports to have multiple bank accounts in different places. 
Yep. That's a really, a lot of people don't think about that, but if you can open up a bank account somewhere else and still have an international card that works, there's real value to that. Having it in more than one country, you know, learning some basic food, like agriculture skills. I mean, right now with inflation, with everything that's happening, what was so shocking to me is how easy it is to keep chickens. I'm like, you just have, if you have a yard, you just make sure there's a cage so nothing can get in and kill them because the cats want to go get them. And, you know, you throw some food down, sure, if you want, but generally speaking, they just eat the bugs. And one chicken will give you five, seven eggs a week. And I'm like, and they're the best eggs you'll ever eat. And they're, if you got eggs every day, you like, you're good. So, I mean, there's just some really basic fundamental things that people can do. You can easily set up a hydroponic system with solar panels. It might not be enough to, you know, power your house, but it can power a little motor to push water around and grow some plants for you, you know, like. So there's a lot of value in that. So that's kind of like the food, power, and then health, sleep, diet, exercise, you know, plants and protein, wherever you want to get your protein from. That's a real fundamental. If it's got a food label, it's not food. This speaks to a little bit of the, you know, the corruption. There's a, a chart on our world and data. If you look up like life expectancy versus health expenditure, the United States is an outlier. It's over double, almost triple what you would pay in, in almost in any other country, not almost in any other country in the world. And the life expectancy isn't even top 10. No, you know, like China Medi is a third world country and they're living, living Americans now. And their, their medical results in America are really poor. You know, on the food front, one, one thing to do is also live somewhere where people still grow their own food. Yeah. Even if you're not a farmer yourself, yeah. it's nice that there are people around you that still know how to do that. In, in the United States, there are a million wonderful small towns throughout the United States where real estate is still, you know, affordable. Sometimes there's a college, you know, so there's social and cultural things going on. And then 10 minutes, 15 minutes out of town, there's people farming, Yep. you know, you know, rather than living in Orlando or Las Vegas, yeah, <laughs> one of those places where, you know, there is no food, food, uh, desert. food, food desert, live somewhere like where we live. It's pretty good. We in the seas, we can get eggs, beautiful eggs all the time. We can get great meat, but you know, during this growing season, we get the best produce in the world. You know, there's farms everywhere around here. So and it I think makes, this, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, it makes a difference. The quality of the food you eat makes it makes a big difference. hundred percent. And just access to it. Again, you want to know what you're getting. That's the problem with ordering food all the time. And when it comes out of a box, you know, a lot of ways food companies are like drug dealers. They buy like a pound of cocaine and they mix it with three That's pounds great. of other stuff. And now they got four pounds of product and they shove it out, but it's non-food, not good for you. And there's the, there really is a partnership between food companies and big pharma where the one gets you sick and the other one keeps getting you to your next appointment and you're paying monthly, weekly for your groceries and you're paying weekly for your meds. And they just got you on this cycle. There's more, more money in sick people and healthy ones. You talked about Fauci's track record. Pfizer themselves in 2009 paid the biggest criminal fine ever in American history. They paid $3.6 billion or something. It's on the government website for criminal, criminal fines for fraudulent marketing a known dangerous product. And we made the U.S. health authorities and Pfizer the leaders through this pandemic. Like you couldn't have picked worse people to lead you through Oh, yeah. It's like picking a tour guide to take you into the jungle where the last three tours, nobody came back. Right. right. And he's the one that robbed everybody in the yeah. jungle. Yeah. yeah. It's madness. It's mad. Well, they, they control the news media. And that's why I don't bl blame people necessarily, because 
really things were absolutely locked down and controlled. Oh, yeah. You know, the facts about Pfizer, the facts about Fauci's track record, the facts that um, you know, the extreme exaggeration of the danger, what they're called a virus. I mean, everything was exaggerated. And and the people that really knew, the Oxford guys, the Harvard guys, the Yale guys, the Stanford guys, they were all locked out. Yeah. They couldn't yeah. get media appearances. Yeah, they were deplatformed, censored, shadow banned. So how do people avoid being fooled? Like, what do you recommend now? You already started talking about a little bit. You were talking about kind of like primary sources and, you know, the, who knows? If somebody's saying something, you know, who is this guy and what's his track record? Especially when something huge is at stake. And, you know, this was huge. This was trillions of dollars of of wealth in the hands of people like you and me and regular working people just was evaporated in, in just a few years. Kids didn't go to school. Handicapped people didn't get the daily, you know, therapy they need. Yep. I mean, it was just a catastrophic train wreck. So if something, and, and everybody in their life is going to, at, at some point, maybe more than one point, is going to be faced with a big decision, either a big financial decision or a big health decision. And, and I think whenever it's big, you need to stop and say, okay, I need information. I'm getting information from this guy. Who is he? <laughs> What's his track record? Does he have a dog in the fight that maybe is against my best interest that I'm not aware of? I mean, all these things become really important. And then the second thing is, is there open discussion about mm. the conclusion? Because mm. nobody's God. Nobody knows everything. People can get it wrong. And that's why it's important, if, especially if you're going to do something drastic. Yep. But even things like if you're going to buy a house, you know, I would knock on the door. I mean, I, you know, if I were when I bought a house, I haven't bought one in a long time that I live in. I would knock on the door of neighbors and say, hi, I'm thinking of moving to this neighborhood. What, what's it like? And you may find good things. You may find horrible things. You may say, oh, well, you know, they're putting in a rendering plant next month. You know, they're going to be taking cows right. and dead horses and turning them into right. glue. And you're like, whoa, the realtor didn't tell me that. Right. Yeah. Can you, <laughs> um, can you speak to that a bit? Because I think some people, they don't understand why they can't just accept a pre-digested opinion you know, like all these fact checker things. Like, can you speak a little bit about the Google bomb and the reputation management industry? Well, the fact checkers are all frauds. I mean, the fact checking industry was created as a cover and as an attack dog to cover lies and and shut down the people that were trying to ask intelligent questions. Right. So it's not real. Nothing, nothing about the fact and in, fact checking industry is real. You can trace them all back to foundations, and the foundations can all be tracked track back to pharma, to to big tech, to people like Gates. Right. Even the here's something frightening. I put this book out too. The Nuremberg Code. Yes. Yeah. And th that's sort of the fundamental me medical ethics document in the 20th century. And there's this whole field of people called medical ethicists. And uh, as I say, as I mentioned in the book, the average salary for a medical ethicist, if you're employed as one, is about 100000 a year. If you're a professor, you get about 150 plus the benefits. There are 36 medical ethics programs, degree-granting medical ethics programs in the United States. The FDA, the CHD, the, they all have medical ethics departments, staff with well-paid people getting taxpayer dollars. We had just had the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg Code, mm. and not a single one of these people who's living it is to talk about medical ethics and think about medical ethics, wrote an article, did an interview, had a conference, had a podcast, right? did anything to pay attention to this document. So, so even the medical ethics 
community or community industry is completely corrupt. Completely. One guy in a university of California stood up and he lost his job. The rest of them went along with everything. And it was, it really was the job of the medical ethicists to say, gee, do we really want to deprive children of their educations? Do we really want to deprive elderly people in nursing homes of getting company uh, of their family? Do we really want to shut down family owned businesses across the, the world? Do we really, you know, those questions should have been asked by medical ethicists and they didn't say a peep. No, you couldn't say anything. Yeah. And then I have a friend that's a real expert in all this. And she's an actually, and she was my co-author on this. She's a Holocaust survivor. She's 87. And she's also a student of the pharmaceutical industry and all their misdeeds. And she explained to me, oh yeah, the medical ethics industry is a joke. Right. Right. They've been set up, they're endowed, and their purpose is to not rock the boat for anything that pharma or the government wants to do. Right, right. They get into crazy conversations like, and I'll I'll tell you right now, oh, shouldn't the government pay for a 10-year-old to have a sex change operation? That's the kind of things they're talking about in the medical ethics circles. Instead of asking, should children have an education, they're asking crazy stuff and supporting that. Yeah, there's a a lack of personal accountability, the personal responsibility. And this has been a slippery slope. I brought up reputation management because I want people to understand that, you know, they say never attribute to malice what can be easily attributed to incompetence. And I feel like part of how we got in here may have been the early, early foundations of reputation management, where maybe a competitor doesn't like you. And so they, they, them and their friends slander your business. And so reputation management originally started with companies that tried to help good companies kind of clean their reputation. And this became building networks of, you know, of influencers before influencers were a thing, media outlets where they could get an article published. You know, there like they, there was something called the Oprah effect where Oprah used to have a team that would have to audit your business before you could be featured or mentioned on their oh, show because really? it would crush businesses. If Oprah just was on like, oh, I'm just eating my little croissant for my local bakery and I love them so much. And then 5,000 people show up at their door the negative reviews outweigh because they don't have the scale, the capacity. A lot of these people, they don't care. They don't care that all the staff are working and someone just had it. Like, they don't care. They're, they expect like McDonald's drive through anytime service. So the negative reviews could bury and, and just the negative talk could bury these companies that got mentioned. It was called the Oprah effect. So reputation management kind of came as, I think in the early days, you know, benign and benign enough in the sense of, a way for companies that are dealing with something like that, or maybe they did do do bad, but they've committed to improve, you know, and they tried to get rid of that, you know, make up for that reputation, especially online being a digital tattoo. But now it becomes, hey, this one person has this network, they can get you on Bloomberg, on the cover of Time Magazine, all this stuff. You just have to pay to play, as you mentioned, like Bill Gates, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden, you you know, you could have committed a genocide with polio vaccines. And all of a sudden, now you're the world's greatest philanthropist and the savior yeah. of humanity. You know, and yeah, I, and yeah. so I, you know, yeah. I, I could, by amazing coincidence, a, a system grad who is a really innovative physical therapist got really interested in all these topics of, of information control and wrote this really good book. She just sent it to me. Oh, that looks good. One idea to rule them all reverse engineering American propaganda for people that are only listening to the audio. You need to check out these books. Ken is published. You can look them up on Amazon. Ken McCarthy, M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y. It's also his own site, KenMcCarthy.com, but he has the, his books on Amazon, Unraveling the COVID Con, How One Marketer Exposed the Truth When It Mattered. There's a volume one and volume two. 
And earlier he was showing his book, The Nuremberg Code. It's the 75th anniversary commemorative edition on this. And these, like he said, these were, the Nuremberg Code came after Germany when they tried to figure out how did this happen? And they came up with some principles in terms of medical ethics. So we would never end up in that situation again. And it's it's so wild. I forget his name, Tim, I forget his last name, but he was the, the main lead in Shawshank Redemption. I love that movie. And he was saying that he- Oh, flipped. Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. He did this great yeah. interview and he was saying that things flip for him because, you know, people have substance abuse issues, people attempt suicide, and we try to save them because we value human life. But it's somehow we became, we went from, you know, get the vax to you should fucking die because you didn't get it. And that's just, that's a, a blatant, I mean, my body, my choice. You know, we talk about women's rights, but Nuremberg Code, like, you know, it's just, it's just the propaganda, the brainwashing. And, and a lot of people think they're immune to propaganda, but we're all very nope. suggestible. Nope. You know what? No, nobody, nobody is. Nobody is. And that's why you need some tools procedures to to because if you don't have those tools and don't use them anybody can be washed away because these yeah. guys did it this was a professional operation i mean well, this was not some casual campaign i mean this right. was thoroughly thought out billions who know i mean someone was I, I you know i was i've been advising a lot of sort of resistance groups in different states and somebody said the state of minnesota alone in one year spent a billion dollars on advertising, you know, their, their agenda, their COVID oh, yeah. agenda. That's yeah. one state in, in the United States. It's that's insane. a lot. That's a lot of ad dollars. Yep. And then they got a lot of free ad dollars because you had all the newscasters just repeating whatever they had to say. Right. And then the local politicians and, and everybody joining the bandwagon. And yeah, it's called fifth generation warfare. It's a non-kinetic warfare that deals mostly with social engineering and misinformation and influence yeah. and social, like just well, social engineering. And, and we just saw that in probably the most concerted, most sophisticated global worldwide psyops. And they've been beta testing this technology already, apparently for years, like again, using social media to suppress certain things. Cause if you can control what people can talk about, then you control the thoughts that they have and the things and the opinions that get around. And like we mentioned about eliminating errors, uh, that doesn't happen. So one of the best things you can do is really educate yourself about what's really going on. And one of the ways, and, ask, yeah. and even, you know, even lots of, lots of times people feel insecure because they're going, well, I'm not a doctor. I failed biology in high school. I don't know, you know, but, but you have a mind and, and you can ask questions. And when it comes to you and your body and your business and your life and your community and your family, you have the right to ask any questions you want. And if you're not getting answers, whether it's from Fauci or the news media or some corrupt politician or your own doctor. Yeah. Many of us have experiences with doctors that don't want to bother to answer questions. You're entitled to ask questions. Be as One of my things is I never am afraid to look dumb. I don't yeah. care if I'm asking the dumbest questions in the world. I don't care because yeah. I want to know what's going on. Right. So I'm happy to look dumb. And I don't, you know, I feel the discomfort of that. You don't want to admit you don't know something or you don't want to admit you don't understand something, but you have to get over that and be willing to be the dumb guy and ask all the dumb questions until you get answers that satisfy you. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. And a lot of people, like if you look at Michelangelo, some of these great people from ancient times, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, they were architects. They were into astro was astronomy. They were like a painters. They were so proficient Doctors. in a number of fields. Painters. Why yeah. not you? Why not you? 
So instead of just saying, oh, I can't, why not just take those steps and find someone that can explain it to you like a fifth grader? Because if you truly understand something, you can explain it in simple terms. You know, like you it's said, it's really like, true. It's yeah. really true. People that make things super complicated and throw a bunch of incomprehensible terms around, they're not smarter. Yeah. They just have a strategy to, to intimidate you. Right. You know, that old great book, everybody should read winning through intimidation. Yes. Uh, yeah, right. Well, that's yeah. what that is exactly what these guys did. Yeah. We just have yeah. to know there are unethical people out there who will do these kinds of things. And when, when the stakes are high, oh, yeah. we have to stop and, and start asking some basic questions about what's going on. And then, you know, it was very hard to, to stand up to the, the tidal wave of public opinion, which got yep. the stampede of public opinion. Oh, yeah. But, you know, what, I, you know, taking this full circle, you know, if you're a businessman or businesswoman, entrepreneur, you've got to be able to stand on your own because, yep. you know, you're going to have... You're always going to have somebody telling you you can't do it. It's impossible. Your employees are going to tell you. Your vendors are going to tell you. Your spouses are going to tell you. Your community is going to, you know, your neighbors, your family. Everyone's going to tell you all the reason why things can't be done. Yep. And your job is to find out how to get things done That's regardless. Right. Of, my favorite saying on this is, wait, let's see, ignore the, oh, God. So you got these bunch of mules, right? Ignore the mules and load the wagon. You know, it's like, love- let the mules bray and make all the noise they want to make, load the yeah. damn wagon and get that thing moving. You know, that's, that's right. the entrepreneurial, that ultimately you want to cut right to the chase. That's the entrepreneur, that's the entrepreneurial attitude. A hundred percent. You can't wait for consensus. Oh, you can't. In, in business, you can't wait for consensus. So yeah. that means you have to come up with a hypothesis. You have to collect data and test it and and pivot. Like you said, it's a very scientific process. So one of our mutual friends, Glenn Livingston, he used to say that oh, yeah. whenever he, before he entered a market, he would research until he found a voice of contrarian reason. Ah, nice. That's how he would put it. Where that, you know, where that contrarian reason, where you've found the thing that goes against the status quo, you know, the entrenched ideologies, but it's the truth, so to speak. And that gives you solid ground to stand on because the truth doesn't mind being questioned. And, you know, in a place with free speech and all that, that can really be, I mean, if you look at CrossFit, that's part of why why CrossFit blew up. They stood on true principles, things that really worked and, you know, become one of the fastest growing brands in the history, you know, history of the world that we're aware of. And not everyone loves them. And that's another important lesson is, you know, if you you put up your flag and some people are going to come by and salute it and say, yeah, and other people are going to spit on it. You know, and you just, you got to focus, like Gary Halbert used to say, he had a book called Maximum Money and Minimum Time. And he said the book was the great meat cleaver of humanity. Some people would read it. Some people would love him after reading it. Some people would hate him after reading it. He didn't care. His job was to find the people that loved him and sell them things, you know? So that's another really important lesson. You're never going to be loved by everybody. That is never going to happen. Yeah. You're yeah. never going to be free of critics and enemies and potential saboteurs. That's never going to happen. So, right. but what you can do is build up a big army of people, you know, a big right. team. Right. Right. And we need that. We need the diversity, right? We don't want everyone uniform anyways, because I mean, that's the whole, the whole concept that through all these different opinions and that we kind of, you know, lurch together progress into the sunset, so to speak. So now Ken, I do want to be respectful of your time because I know you've got you know, your own following, your own members, paying members that, you know, are eager to get your advice and your input. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? 
I think we covered it pretty good. You know, if people, I have a book called The System Letters Book, and it's on my website, kenmccarthy.com. And that's a good way to get more of this kind of thinking. It's one, Ben Settle said it was his favorite business book at one point. It's a good, it's, I'm kind of, you know, you write things and you forget about them and then you read them again and go, that's not too bad, you know? So if if you like this, that would be a great way to keep up with ideas like this. And that's at kenmccarthy.com. And uh, no, I think you covered this. We covered a lot of ground in just an hour. It's good. Yeah, we did. We did. And actually one of mine that I, I really liked, because I know I know your body of work, was uh, your financial independence day blueprint. I thought that was really yeah. insightful. It was just very brass tax, you know, good economy, bad economy, financial advice. And so again, you can find all this stuff at kenmccarthy.com. That's M-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y. You can also look up the System Club. It's a monthly membership where Ken speaks with world-class experts and, and dispenses advice. I'm, I've been a member for probably like 10 years now, fully endorse it, firm believer in it. And if you're looking for great quality info, Ken has been a pioneer and a leader uh, in truth and in what works for what, 30 years now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the, on the internet side from 93 and on the direct marketing side from like 84. 84. There we go. So Ken, thank you again so much. It's always an honor and a pleasure. And I really appreciate you sharing this mind space with me and my listeners today. Thank you, Daryl. Appreciate it.